Welcome to another episode of the Heron Outlet. He is Austin Robillard. She is Alex Winley. I am Ian Hest. And uh, maybe not full excitement this week as we get started, but at least it's not another loss, guys. A 1-1 draw midweek, uh, or or, uh, last weekend, excuse me, it's midweek now, uh, against the Philadelphia Union which seems to, uh, Inter-Miami seems to have their number, four of the nine points this season, uh, all coming against the Philadelphia Union. And so uh, let's get started there. Uh, A great return for Gregory. Gonzalo Higuain played extremely well, as did his brother, Robbie Robinson, getting back on the scoreboard with a fantastic showing. The, The first start for Kieran Gibbs. Uh, so, Austin, I'll just start with you. Uh, your biggest takeaway of what uh, trying to dust the cobwebs off what was a, a a terrible stretch of games there, what was the first and most important thing that stuck out to you? Uh, I would have to say control. I think that we saw a lot of control over this match from Inter-Miami. That's not something we've seen over this uh, six-game losing streak prior to. Uh, The possession numbers in the first half were very much in favor of Inter-Miami, even though they couldn't get on the score sheet. And then obviously in the second half, you had the the go-ahead goal from Robbie Robinson, which was phenomenal. Uh, The pass from Higuain was outstanding, that one-touch pass but control over a match is something that they've definitely struggled with. And I'm not sure what the change was, what the, what, what switched in the mentality, but maybe it's, it was the backs against the wall kind of thing, but it was, it was, it was really good to see. And yes, they lost a little bit of control after Sherbalco scored. It looked like Philadelphia was going to walk home with three points after, you know, so many chances on and on and on. Uh, but really controlling the game for me was, was really, really key. And it's something that they need to do going forward. Alex, we're not really used to seeing a lot of possession. Only the third game this year that inter Miami has had more than 50% possession to Austin's point. Tactically, did you see anything there that made it more important for that to happen? Uh, why, why do you think that they went that route? Do you see it moving forward as these new faces come in? I think that the inclusion of Federico Iguain into the lineup did a world of good. Um, I think Inter Miami's been missing that that creative presence in the midfield for you know the entire season Rodolfo Pizarro hasn't been able to get it done so having that engine in the middle of the park to to link the defense into attack was absolutely huge uh, I really liked how Federico played he gave a lot of energy he was tracking back him and Gonzalo have that you know brotherly telepathic uh that link so it it, it, it you know it was it was nice to see them link up and Gonzalo did play better when his brother was on the pitch as well as the return of Gregory. Having Gregory back was huge defensively and offensively. You know, Neville named him the captain, and rightfully so. Um, him and Ujoa in the, in that double pivot did a world of good against uh, uh, Philadelphia's uh, three-man midfield. They they ran their socks off. They were covering holes. They were covering that back line super well. And um, it's definitely a pair that we could see going forward as well. That That midfield has been... A weak point for Inter Miami this season, you know, with Matuidi uh, um, not being the best option there. We'll touch on him later, but yeah, I think Inter Miami definitely wanted that game to be a bit of a, a turning point. You know, they were on a six-game losing streak. Neville 
throughout the week was leading up to that game was, you know, pretty, he stressed on working together as a team, as a unit, working for each other. And we definitely saw that against the union. So we're talking like very positively. I don't want to be the negative Nancy, but I do want to throw out there that that's, it it still is another situation where inter Miami had three points or at least had the lead and gave it up in the last 20, 25 minutes. 10 points now lost in the last 25 minutes of games. That's most in the league. Uh, I don't think anybody's actually even close to that. And this season looks a lot differently. Honestly, last season also looks a lot differently if they're not giving up those late goals. I I know it's a redundant question. I know we keep asking it again and again, but what's going on with this? Because I've never really seen a team that gives up so many goals in the at the end of games where they would be considered a mid-table at the very least team if the games were 20 minutes shorter how does this keep happening is it is it a is it a problem is it a cause for concern or is this something that a team can figure out as the dog days of summer go on I definitely think it's a mentality issue, you know, despite the the draw against the union, this team is pretty fundamentally broken. I think that, you know, once, you know, you see it whenever they concede, especially against the revs the other night, when they conceded that first goal, their shoulders slumped and everyone looked down and, you know, there was no, there was no fight. There was no drive. So when Inter Miami, you know, do score, they think, oh, maybe we'll get the win. And then, you know, maybe they, they overcommit. They don't play hard enough. They try, they try to coast. And then, you know, the, the opposition scores and then you see the the shoulders slump again and you see the negativity. So it's definitely a mentality thing that, you know, either Gregory, you know, or someone needs to step in and just shake the team up. Neville, that's pretty much his job to, to do that. So it, it, I think it's a mentality issue with Inter-Miami and they, they, they need to, to get that together because, you know, dropping points like that, it, it's unacceptable, especially, especially if they want to make the playoffs this season, which is a going to be a difficult task but i was gonna say yeah. that's, that's a heck of a, a thing right now for yeah. <laughs> fewer points than anybody in mls right now for sure but yeah it's it's a mentality issue with them and I, I think that they just need to to keep their their discipline keep their defensive discipline keep uh, you know pounding on the opposition's you know goal uh, try to get you know a two goal three goal lead a cushion for them to be able to 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 see these ones out really Noticeably absent in that was uh, in that match against the Philadelphia Union, uh, one Blaise Matuidi, who was on the bench this time, according to reports, maybe uh, left a little early uh, earlier uh, in the week. Uh, just uh, interesting notes on where he fits in in this team moving forward, because there seems to be a bit of. Um, I don't want to say like bad blood, but there seems to be some sort of a disconnect here between Matuidi, his role, his performance, and where he sits in this team moving forward, how they play with him on the field, and how they play with him off the field. Uh, Austin, what do you think uh, about the future of Matuidi in this club? Well, I don't think that we see him in the starting lineup for at least this coming game and maybe a couple weeks couple games after I think 
obviously they're playing on a they're going to play a couple games on a short week. I think they've got three games in seven or eight days. So maybe that is one of the reasons you see him as a starter. But going into this next match after a full week off, I don't think Phil Neville's going to change change much. I mean, I don't see why, you know, why you put him back in there after the very deflating performance the last time he showed uh, leaving the leaving the, the stadium after at, at halftime not being there with his team for the second half i i've heard that you know his attitude has miss has been much better in training and, and all of that but at the same time i i don't think that his on the field performances give any value to this roster and as much as you guys know i hate to say it uh victor uyoa deserves to be the starter next to gregory and i don't really know if that is up for debate anymore and it's crazy to be saying that about a DP, but at the same time, what really has he provided? And I know Alex is absolutely going to love this. And I know that, you know, me saying these things is really winding her up because it's what she's been saying all year, but it was finally shown and the the cord was plugged. And once it was, Inter-Miami became a better team on the field. And going forward, that's probably the route that they need to use when they're using and thinking about their strongest lineup. Blaise Matuidi doesn't need to be there. And as for the future of you know, what it means for Matuidi, I don't really know what kind of options you have in terms of offloading him. And I know he's got a couple years on his contract, I'm sure. So that that's something to consider. But at the same time, if you can get rid of a Blaise Matuidi and bring in bring in another MLS caliber midfielder, like I remember in the beginning of the season uh, during the offseason, I know Joe Corona was somebody that I was hoping that uh, Miami could go after. And they, they didn't, unfortunately. I think he ended up with Houston, even though Austin took them in, in the expansion draft. There's a whole whole ordeal there, but. Somebody like that could benefit the team a lot more than Matuidi, not only on the field, but off the field as well. And you can probably bring in another DP or look to use only two DP slots and, you know, take advantage of the the young DP slots when you when you do that. So, yeah, I'll turn this over to Alex. But as for Matuidi, I, I don't think that he has the future that he would have thought he had coming into this club. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Yeah, I've been talking about Matuidi for so long. Well, when he first came to Inter Miami, obviously I thought, you know, everyone thought that he'd be an upgrade over that trap, usual a double pivot. And for a period in time, he was, and he did put in a couple of good performances. But obviously, coming into 2021, along with his sanctions, along with the ownership overpaying for a regressing central midfielder who cannot dribble he can't pass he's not good defensively it's a waste of a dp spot he's a waste of money this sounds harsh but statistically he's regressing you know we saw it against the union with gregory and usual starting there was more mobility there was more technical ability in that midfield pairing because matuidi didn't start at this point i i i don't know what inter miami does with his contract because he's not providing what the you know neville needs to be in that that central midfielder role he wants you know central midfielders that will defend that will tackle well that will are tactically aware of they are where they are on the pitch and Matuidi doesn't do any of that and you know michelle kaufman on the big o show the other the other day basically confirming that the other the other night against the revs Matuidi did basically leave the stadium because he was pulled at halftime as someone who was a captain that's unacceptable it shows he's not taking this seriously it shows he's not taking the league seriously and for Jorge Mas to 
go out and break the rules to buy this man. It's I, I've got no words because he's not done anything. I think he scored one goal since his time here at Inter Miami since last summer. But my my word, it's like he is probably the worst signing Inter Miami, and and it's only been two years, so it's crazy. The worst signing Inter Miami will have in a long time because he's done nothing. He he hasn't contributed anything, and he's just he's an eyesore in the starting eleven. And I agree with Austin. He will not. He probably won't be starting against the the not. They're not the impact anymore. They're Montreal CF Montreal. They, he won't be starting against Montreal. Come you almost fell for week. it. Yeah, <laughs> he it's won't a be fine, starting. A fine bucket there. <laughs> yeah, I'm so used to calling them the impact. I still call them that. But yeah, Matuidi will definitely not be starting against Montreal this weekend because you know why change a winning team? We saw that it worked. I don't even think he'll start after after this game either. So, it, it, you know, Matuidi's in the doghouse, and rightfully so. And, you know, the fans are getting on him, and, you know, you heard the reports about him. But, yeah, it's just a poor signing all around. And, he, you know, he deserves to be dropped. And end of. I know that you said that what you said might sound harsh, but I might go a step further. Where does this rank on the worst signings in MLS history because just given the the sanctions that have come with it the the you know the absolute sanctions that will happen for years to come the fact that he's still a designated player the fact that he is a liability on the field and then leaving the stadium as was reported like you said by Michelle Kaufman from the Miami Herald uh I I just I mean I guess Rafa Marquez comes to mind uh, for the for Red Bulls. Julian de Guzman didn't do very well with Toronto FC. There was that Danielson thing. There's Frank Lampard. I, I there in, in terms of the big name signings that have happened in MLS, this has to be up there with one of those ones that were supposed to be a revolutionary signing, a big name, big money contract that has absolutely gone awry to a point that it's not just that it's not working out between him and the club, but that it's actively hurting the club, not only now, but in the future. Right, Alex? I I agree. I I think he's up there. He's definitely up there with, you know, Gerard Pirlo, maybe they, they didn't have too good of a time in MLS either. I think with this signing, I thought, you know, the ownership probably thought, Oh, Matuidi is a world cup winner. He'll put butts in seats, you know, he'll, he'll bring that international flight or enter Miami, but it's, it was not a soccer. It wasn't a high IQ soccer move at all. I think anyone Anyone who's followed, you know, football, you know, for for a while would know that even with Juventus, Matuidi was regressing. Juventus wanted them wanted him off their books for a reason because he was old. He made too much money, and you know, I think it was Allegri who was the coach at the time. He, he you know, he wasn't in the starting eleven. He was used as like a, a backup left back. So for Inter Miami to go and throw the kitchen, ki- excuse me, the kitchen sink at, at Matuidi, it, it was, it was a poor move. It was, it, it, it's going to hurt Inter Miami for years to come because of the sanctions. And, you know, it's hurt, you know, players on this club. Cause now Pellegrini, Matthias Pellegrini, you know, there's rumors about, about him going back to Argentina with Estudiantes. Now he's, he's out of a job for a year because, well, Inter Miami wanted to throw a DP contract at a clearly regressing um, Blaze Matuidi. So it, it, it's a bad signing all around. I, I can't preach any more about it. I can't write any more about it. 
I'm just glad that Phil Neville finally recognized that Matuidi was not added, adding anything to the starting 11 and, and benched them for someone like a Chapman or Ujula. I, I just have a little little thought slash tidbit here. It, it is a very likely possibility that Miami will feel the effects of the Blaise Matuidi signing in a negative way uh, due to the or via this, the sanctions and Blaise Matuidi should not be on the roster within the next two years. So he might not even be on the team and the team will be negatively impact because of the signing. Um, I just think that that is really wild to think about. And that's why for me, the fact that everybody would want him gone, even though, you know, we spent so much money to try and get him and we went out of our way to get him. And, you know, the club is now feeling the the effects for it, for basically cheating and, if he's gone within the next two years, you're going to feel all those sanctions, all, sanctions and all those negative effects, and he's not even going to be producing anything for you um, on the field. And that, that's crazy to think about. Uh, that's just something that should not have ever happened, especially with the DP signing. And that's why, for me, I would say it's got to be up there, like Ian said, for worst MLS signings of all time. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think that the only comparable one is Rafa Marquez. I think that that signing at the end there with Red Bulls, he was so widely hated and they spent so much money on him. And I'm not saying that even Matuidi is hated to the level that Marquez was at the end there because that was a, that was a really wild time for that club. But just absolutely, um, like you said, Austin, this is going to linger with the club for years after he's gone. And I think, you know, it's an easy transition to say the club recently uh, acquired Venturo Alvarado uh, from Mexico. And in that signing, they'll have him for the rest of the year, another two and a half year contract like Matuidi has. But this time it's an end of the year contract with a club option for next year in 2022 a club option for 2023. And I think that that might be Chris Henderson sort of saying, okay, I want a little more flexibility with this roster. So as Alvarado comes in, uh, you know, spent a decade in Mexico, uh, former, played a cup, about a dozen games with the U.S. men's national team, a nice center back. Where do we see him slotting in? How quickly do we see him slotting in? Given that Kieran Gibbs started in his second game, we've already seen Vasilev play twice. Uh, we're, we're seeing these guys that are, are the quick signings uh, really be incorporated into the squad very fast, Austin. Yeah, and I think that you have to look at the defensive situation as a whole when looking at Ventura Alvarado and, and think that, okay, in this last match, you had Kelvin Leardham back fully fit and fully healthy coming back from the Gold Cup. And for some reason, he did not get the start at right back. And Figal was chosen by by Phil Neville to start there. And that opens my eyes to say, okay, well, then if you are going to make Figal this right back, LGP and Shawcross are the, are your only two other center backs on the roster. And if Figal is on the pitch, he obviously can't substitute there. That's where the Venturo Alvarado signing comes in. That's kind of how I took it. I'm sure other people take that in a different way. But for me, Kelvin Leardham not starting as a right back was a little bit shocking to me. Um, and not using the LGP Figal pairing at center back was also shocking to him. 
for, for for Phil Neville to keep going to shot cross, given the fact that he he definitely tires out late in games, he is slow and cannot keep up with some of the MLS attackers. I think that that's where Ventura comes in, and I'm not sure if we. I mean. I don't know how good he's going to be. I, I, it's been a while since a lot of people I've seen him play. So I don't know if he's going to be able to slot in right away. But if he is, I think that that means that Figal right back days are here to stay. And Shawcross starting days might dwindle down towards the end. If he if he can link up pairing with LGP, that could be something you see going forward, given the fact that Leardom was fit and Figal was still out wide. I'm going to reverse that on you. And Alex, I want you to break the tie when I'm done. Because what I think is that Ventura Alvarado comes in and he's the guy now and Shawcross moves to the bench. I think that uh, he ha- Shawcross has not adapted to MLS very well. That attacking threat that he's so potent at or was so potent at at Stoke hasn't been there. And I think that uh, Alvarado can come in and provide what Phil is looking for in that process. And and then you have sort of a decision which one of those two are fittest, are in the best form, how are they adapting, and that sort of provides more options. But I'm curious to see if Alex will break the tie on this. I think um, I'll agree with Austin's point that we're going to see more quick signings like this because of the sanctions you know, more Vasilevs, more uh, Alvarados in that regard. That's Chris Henderson being super flexible with um, the incoming, you know, sanctions that are coming. But I do think that I agree with you, Ian, about I think Shawcross, I think he, he'll 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 end up being, you know, sent to the bench because, you know, in, in the last few games you saw him, you know, a bit slow, you know, a bit. Tired, well, I, don't think you know. that, I don't think that it's a bad th- I think that it can be a rotational thing no, yeah, I don't think sure. that he's washed by any sense I just think that Alvarado provides you fresher legs yeah even in the beginning of the season Henderson talked about they want competition at every spot and Ventura coming in is you know Neville said it this morning in the conference this is competition for LJP Figal you know McCoon uh you know, just to make sure that they're not getting too comfortable with their starting their starting spots. So I do think this is a wise move. Um, I've watched some tape on Ventura. He seems like a pacey player. He's good at interceptions. He's got good feet. You know, he's comfortable on the ball. He likes playing out of the back. So this is definitely an acquisition that uh, is smart for Inter Miami. And I do think he'll end up starting sooner rather than later because if you look at Kieran Gibbs, he got the start when it, it was his second day on the job you know he was he barely got here and he was thrown into that back line so I do think Ventura will start sooner rather than later and I do agree that he'll probably end up taking Shawcross's spot in the back line and an interesting thing Neville did compare uh, Ventura's uh, playing style a bit to Nico Figal and I know we like that LGP Figal center back pairing so maybe getting a Figal like center back next to LGP will will, you know, help lessen the blow when it comes to that transition. And, you know, Figal can start over there on the right-hand side. I, I want to ask, are, are we okay with Figal uh, starting out wide? Because in that game against the Revolution, it was probably one of Figal's most erratic, crazy performances that we've seen. And obviously on the negative side, I mean, it, it was unbelievably bad from Figo. And I think I, I 
you can quote me in saying that that was his worst performance in an Inter Miami shirt. And I have to go back on some of my words now because in the beginning of the season, Alex definitely knows this. Um, I, I was for Figal playing right back, and I actually do think he's had some good moments out there. I think there was one game early on in the season where he had an assist in one of the games uh, after being subbed out wide and they brought on Shawcross. So there are good moments there for him, but are we fully comfortable with Nico Figal being 100% a right back? Because I personally don't think so. I would like to see the pairing with LGP and Figal at center back and use Ventura and Shawcross as the third and fourth options. But if what Alex said is true after she watched the tape, and I do trust Alex fully, trust me, um, if Alvarado is a is a Figal type center back, I think that him and LGP could work out really well. But then it does leave Figal out wide, and I would much rather have a true right back and Kelvin Leardom start there. Austin, to answer your question, I live in the world that I live in, and if I had the option, I would not want that uh, I would prefer Figal at center back but it's clear they said from since training camp we've been talking about this they consider him a right back I agree that he should be a center back wholeheartedly he actually did play quite well against Philadelphia Union we should give him credit he had he, he, he did recovered he did play well nicely. against Philly yes yes yeah he recovered very nicely from that and and even in the atro in, in the atrocity that was the New England Revolution game he still did play one of the best balls of the entire game in, in that cross field attack with that wound up hitting the bar that being said they consider him a right back I don't know what else to tell you at this point. The the decision's been made. So we keep, and I know that we keep having this debate, whether he's a center back or right back. They've made the decision for everybody. He's going to play it right back. And I think that we just have to live in the world that we live in. Yeah, about that. I think I want to touch on Leardom a bit. I, I, I rate Leardom very highly i think he's a you know great attacking fullback he's an MLS vet it's strange that neville doesn't go to him more i don't know if there's like a lingering injury but neville i think it's a gold cup thing i was i I think it's a gold that that, really quickly alex he yeah uh surinam used leardom in the central midfield role uh throughout the entire tournament in which they were alive for obviously um but that could be something he was playing in a fully different role and and was not accustomed to the right back role for the last what three four weeks now and now that he's back in training maybe it's a, a comfortability thing that that could be something that's going on. Ah, okay, but yeah, yeah, I saw a couple of those games and at one point he was you know a, a center defensive mid. He was playing as a center a center back. It was pretty. It was it was a crazy tournament for Cernan. But yeah, as far as Figal goes, I think. Ian is right. They see him as a, a right back. Um, you know, while we may want him to start at, in the center of the pitch with LGP, I, I do think going forward, Figal will be the starting right back on this team. Um, yeah, Shawcross will be on the bench sooner rather than later for Ventura. And I, I think that, and I want to touch on this real quick about, uh, you know, Austin's talked about this before with Dylan Nealis being traded. <laughs> Uh, what was it? Early 2021, late 2020, um, to Nashville. <sighs> I'm so and sad that we're going here. I'm so he, sad. I'm so sorry, but c- looking I back at it, just put in the chat what a mistake that was. Yeah, <laughs> I've like, hated it since the beginning. I'm telling you, I thought it was an awful, awful deal. But go on, Alex. Like uh, looking back at it now, I, I didn't really rate Nealis that highly, but 
the team could use him right now. This merry-go-round at right back, it 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 it's it's crying out for someone, you know, a death piece like Nealis just to cover a couple of games. And you know, if Nealis was still on the squad, maybe Figal wouldn't have been you know pushed out to right back. But yeah, this is something that Neville has to to get a grip grip on. But I do think that Figal will be the starting right back going forward with. You know, occasionally if, if Shaw Cross is not up for it or unfit and LGP gets suspended due to yellow card, I, I do see Ventura and Figal moving to the middle together eventually. But as of right now, that, that back four, I think it'll be Gibbs, uh, LGP, uh, Shaw Cross, Figal uh, going forward with Ventura getting some, some minutes uh, depending on the situation. It's almost as if, and I'm a big fan of the Super Draft, but it's almost as if the number one overall pick and Herman Award winner coming into his own and starting to score goals in year two, and the number three pick that was one of the best players on one of the best teams in the country at right back with the number three overall pick. In year two, these two guys wind up becoming good things, and that might be a good way to build a roster. I mean, I, I'm the captain I'm so, of the NCAA champions. I think exactly. Nielus was. Yeah, yeah. Like I, it was so crazy to me that everything was moved on from so quickly, and and Robbie is proof of it. Dylan performing well in Nashville. Like these guys have played really well, and the, the whole DK argument goes to it as well. So these guys being able to perform in year two, yeah, sometimes it takes a guy a year or two to get adjusted, especially these younger guys, Austin. One hundred percent, and that's why I mean, well, first of all, I'm delighted with with Robbie Robinson, and I know that we, I think we scheduled to talk about him and and his goal. I mean, he has put on phenomenal performances all year when healthy, and actually, the best fact of this season so far up to this point now is that Robbie Robinson is finally healthy. He looks vibrant. He looks like he's going strong, and that's going to really, really, uh, you know bolster the attack i think and it's going to help the goal scoring and it did against philadelphia now as for dylan nealis yeah sure it'll take an ncaa guy a couple years to get accustomed to the league and i think that is a very normal normal thing because i don't know the adjustment from the ncaa to to major league soccer is quite a big jump and it's not a jump that 90 percent of players take well It, it takes quite some time and if they do end up being successful and i think that robbie robinson and dylan nealis both have very long, successful MLS careers ahead of them if they are to stay in the league. It took Nealis quite some time, I think. I was, I've was, been keeping up with him in Nashville. He finally broke a couple of the starting roster, starting lineups for, for some of the games, and he's coming into his own uh, out there in Nashville, but he's starting to play a lot better. And, and like Alex said, it was a depth piece that that could have been could have been used and was 100% needed uh, throughout the first part of this season. And I'm I'm I, I I think they regret it. I definitely regret seeing it happen. And I think it was only for what 175 thousand dollars in in general allocation money, which they probably might really need. But at the end of the day. You could have gone without it, I'm sure, find a way or found a way to get GAM in some other way and have a solidified right back for these these tough times that you've had. Um, but man, I, I've i said it from the beginning. I, I really hated this Nealis signing and I, I or this Nealis trade and I can't get over it. But with Ventura here and looking at what the right back situation is now with Figal and Leardom, it looks to be more solidified when you bring in another center back to provide depth there. But still... Nealis definitely could have helped. Just real fast before I let Alex jump in here. That, that's 
like a Jack Maher thing of, of why he didn't break in because of, of the system. It just makes sense for Maher to be it. But that's irrelevant. Alex, I'll let you talk about Robbie. Yeah, so I know, you know, the DK thing, you know, draft picks. Robbie will live for that forever unless he surpasses what DK did in his first year. I think with Robbie, it's a matter of, you know, patience with him. I think you, you'll hear Neville talk about it, how they want to just keep him on the track of, you know, doing the things that make a good professional soccer player a good professional soccer player, you know, doing the health, uh, the health bits, you know, you know, drinking water, you know, recovery, all of all of that, that stuff with, that comes with being a professional footballer I, with Inter Miami. I think they rate high, uh, they rate Robbie super highly and you see it on the pitch. Uh, Robbie's starting to repay the faith that the training staff has put on him, you know, that Philly game. Both Philly games, I know he went out injured in the first half when Miami played them earlier in the year, but um, <clears throat> that second Union game, he was one of the best players on the pitch, hands down. He was lively, he was active, you know, he was running at defenders, taking them one-on-one, you know, combining well with Federico and Gonzalo, you know. And he even uh, touched on his uh, budding relationship with Kieran Gibbs on that left-hand side. He talked about how he loved combining with with Kieran and how you know Gibbs would you know make an outside run and Robbie would go on the inside or vice versa. So um, when when Gibbs continues to get those starts, I think Inter Miami fans and the coaching staff will see a really good uh, attacking uh, duo down that left hand side, which was something Inter Miami has been missing since their existence. That left hand side has been absolutely empty. So finally getting Robbie back and getting a left back like uh, Kieran Gibson will be huge absolutely huge for the club and yeah the Dylan Nealis thing I think it was done before you know I don't think Chris Henderson was the 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 sporting director at the time so whoever did that move probably Paul McDonough which was it was it's just a dumb move you know like I said I I didn't rate Nealis that highly but looking back at it now it's definitely something that Inter Miami you know could have used (laughs) instead of you know playing Victor Ujoa out of position for like three games it was crazy hard to watch but you know it is what it is but yeah I I like Robbie um I'm I'm rooting for him I was so happy when he scored I think you know when he scored in the press box I think Austin saw me freaking out a bit but yeah yeah I'm just excited to see him flourish into the player that we know that he can be so speaking of the kids, uh, Phil has talked this week uh, very glowingly about the academy, um, Fort Lauderdale, the Heronitos, and and what they're going through uh, as they fight for a playoff battle in USL League One. Uh, very positive vibes from the younger ranks going on. Phil even went so far as to say that he thinks that there are four or five guys on Fort Lauderdale CF currently that could be uh, Mabika being one of them, uh, that, that could be fighting for MLS spots next year. Alex, you've watched this team. I've watched this team. I think you and I could talk forever about this, about the evolution of this team, how much fun they are to watch, but just how formidable they are and how how tough they stick in so hard. And yet they score so many goals, they give up a lot. But really, it, they almost embody what you would think Inter-Miami would. And how do you see this evolution continuing? Because it feels like 
each and every week that we keep talking about this, there's more and more of it rubbing off on the senior team coming from the bottom up. I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. I'm not saying one either way. But it just seems as though that team and their style of play and their veracity is moving its way up the chain instead of the senior team moving its way on down. Well, with Inter Miami's current record, I think that they need some semblance of a style of play, right? I, you know, watching Fort Lauderdale CF, I, I think they play better football than the first team at the moment, and they've got tons of really good prospects coming through the ranks that I know for a fact will be on the first team next season because they're so good and they're players that Inter Miami need on there. Name them. Um, Yes, absolutely. That was my next Name go-to. <laughs> Benton Evans, Mitch Curry, Amema Bika, Georgia Costa. Um, if you guys want to throw any other names, there's so many. Ethan Harden, maybe? Ethan yes, Harden? the Harden yes. Gadiri, I mean, is playing Hundle, with the first team. If, if Dylan Castanero can stay healthy, then maybe when Nick Marsman's contract runs out. Yeah, for sure, for sure. There's just... You know, great prospects coming through. I urge people to subscribe to ESPN Plus. Watch these guys play. It's really fun. Darren Powell has done such a good job with the mini Herons. You know, like I said, they play better football than Inter Miami CF. And I, I want to give a shout out to Amema Bika. Each week that he starts and he plays, he's only getting better. You know, the guy is six six. He's got better touch than when I scouted him for the MLS draft. He's he's grown into a player. He's physically. A, a, a huge guy he will never get beat one he's on unbelievable one i mean like, like he, he's so he, good you, you never have to question where he is on the field because no. you he sticks out and he is still just as athletic as everybody else on the field exactly he will never get beat 1v1 he he's taller than everyone it takes him two and a half steps to you know get to his defender and and box them out and win the ball back he's got good touch good tactical awareness i'm i'm very excited to see him uh, come up to the first team. I, I sort of wish that they maybe would have went with him instead of Ventura, but I digress. Uh, he'll he'll get his time with Inter Miami soon. But yeah, Inter, uh, Fort Lauderdale CF definitely a team that it, not only they're not they're not only a feeder team, but they definitely stand out in their own right in USL League One. They're a fun team to watch. They're they're still fighting for a playoff spot, and uh, they do play this weekend. Um, I forgot the team's name that they're playing against, but yeah, go check them out on ESPN Plus. They're North they're Carolina. really excited. North Carolina, oh, yeah. my dad's hometown state. Um, yeah, so go watch them on ESPN Plus. They're they're a great they're a great side. Darren Powell has done super well with them, and I I, I wish that I can get into games to cover them, but you know, Inter Miami won't let us do that yet. So I keep I keep wondering about that when they're going to allow people in the stands for Fort yeah. Lauderdale CF. Because like they they really are you you really touched on it. They are a fun team. And yeah, they're like hanging around in this playoff race, but they're making a like a running for it. They just score goals. They are guns blazing. They are so exciting. I mean, we were throwing out some names like we didn't even mention Eddie Ascona. Like they have so much that is so fun about them that I wish we got to talk about them more. I completely agree. I don't know why they they won't let fans in there. I know La Familia will definitely show up. Um, you mentioned Edison Ascona. I know a lot of people maybe see him as a bit of a winger, center forward type. But for Fort Lauderdale CF, he's lined up on the wing, but he's very much a central midfielder. He's got good touch, good ball retention. You know, he's tactically aware. He's got good vision. So. 
uh, keep your eye on that as he develops his game a bit more. I, I fully expect him to be a bit of a more of an eight ten hybrid. He, he's a very smart player. He's very good on the ball. He plays, you know, older than he is. I think he's seventeen, eighteen. So you know, as he develops more, he's not going to be so much of a winger that will beat you know his man one on one. He's very much a creator. He does like to score, but I do see him moving a bit centrally. He he reminds me of what how Lewis has played this year, where he used to be out wide. And now it's it's more of that diagonal direct run of of how Lewis has changed his game from last year to this. Would you agree, Alex? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I do think that Lewis Morgan is more comfortable as a out and out winger, you know, getting to the byline, crossing in. But with Ascona, he, you know, we saw him with the Dominican Republic, they had him out wide, but he does tend to tuck in centrally. And I do think that's where he does his best work, you know, uh, plugging the gaps, finding those holes to distribute to Hundal or, or Mitch Curry or Renton Evans. And he's a tricky little player. You know, I think he's only what five, six, but he, he's, he plays bigger than he is. All right, guys, let's move on. Cause it's double game week. So there's a lot to get to in a short period of time here, but real first, uh, we have to talk about the New York Red Bulls game that was scheduled, uh, previously got rained out because of that lightning delay rescheduled for October 9th. That puts it directly in the path of that, uh, long road trip that inter Miami will have at the beginning of October. Uh, I, I looked it up online. It will wind up being in that four-game stretch, an 8,000-mile trek from here in South Florida to Atlanta, then to Portland, then over to New York, then back to Columbus, Ohio, before coming back home. 8,000 miles is about the equivalent of an entire Premier League season if you go back and forth between London and Manchester again and again. So just in that short three-week period of time, Inter-Miami will have a tremendous, uh, really arduous task on their hands. Your feelings about the rescheduling, when that date is, even though it's also going to be in the middle of a double game week, Austin, what, do, do, should you just chalk it up to this is going to be a rough go of it towards the end of the season? I'm going to do my best to bring my good juju out to Portland. I, I am going to that game. I have scheduled a trip and everything, so that, hey, that is the game I'll too. be at. I'll see you there. Okay, there you go. See, I just thought that that's like one of our best away trips, I thought, throughout the season, so I decided to book it. Uh, but when you put it into perspective, just how crazy travel is within America in terms of sports compared to like the Premier League, uh, it's quite insane. And traveling that much, not being home for what what is that, two and a half weeks, traveling that much, I mean, it's going to be a very rough go. And by that point in the beginning of October and end of September, when you look at it, that's the part where you're trying to make a playoff push if we get there. Obviously, that sounds very, very hopeful for the state of the club right now, considering they're nowhere near that and don't look to get near that by that time. But if they turn the turn the ship around and, and do get there, that is really tough towards the end of the season to try and get a couple of points uh, in a place where you may really need them. So it's a pretty unfortunate reschedule. I think the ninth, you know, it, it gave Miami a week off between two games. So that could have been really good for them at that point in the season. But I guess there was no other place to put it. So very tough uh, draw there, but there's not much you can do about it. And you hope the boys can can get through it. 
I am curious to how, you know, the, the former Euro- European based players will take that travel. I don't, yeah, like you said, I don't think Inter Miami's traveled that much this season. So, you know, for the Matuidis, if he starts, uh, you know, Iguain, you know, some of these other guys that have come over to MLS, how are they going to, you know, deal with that? It, it could hurt, actually, not hurt. It will hurt Inter Miami because, you know, the one number one thing guys that come into MLS talk about is, you know, the weather and the travel. So I was just wondering. How will Inter Miami deal with that? Yeah, I mean, it is the longest road trip in club history. They've never been on the road for that long, that far, in that level of distance. So um, I, I think it'll be very difficult. Remember, this season, everybody is playing against all of their conference opponents and then have two crossover games. The first game of the year was L.A. at home, Portland away, is the uh, is the other Western Conference game? So this is that return trip. So you're always looking to gain points in, in against the Western foes that helps in the playoff race. If they're in the playoff hunt at that time, it kind of stinks that now this is sort of going to be sandwiched into that very important run. You're talking about Atlanta and Columbus and New York. These are three teams that if they are in that playoff run they'll be fighting against. And so it's just really unfortunate that they're going to have to go on all of these back and forth road trips in this short period of time uh, to see. It's it's always difficult to win on the road in MLS, right? One of the most amazing things about this season in Inter-Miami being an anomaly is that how poorly they've played at home historically in MLS. If you your home games are the games where you pick up a ton of points – they're actually middle of the table if they just have their road results. So they've actually played pretty well on the road this year. So that doesn't worry me as much, but it is an important stretch of games that it kind of stinks that they're now having to deal with it in more of a condensed schedule. But as I digress from one postponed game due to lightning and rain to another that was delayed due to lightning and rain. Last time Inter-Miami and Montreal faced off, uh, there was quite a couple-hour weather delay, and Inter-Miami came out extremely flat, lost the game 2-0. Now they find themselves this weekend against Montreal again. And so let's preview this game. We, we mentioned Matuidi possibly being in, possibly being out. Uh, Indiana Vasilev has appeared off the bench in both games. Kieran Gibbs got the start last time out. Nick Marsman has started in goal now ahead of John McCarthy. Guys, let's start to preview this game, and then we'll get into the kittens, as I uh, endearingly call them, uh, when they'll find themselves in Disneyland, Disney World uh, midweek. Yeah, I think that when I look at the last two uh, Montreal games, uh, for me, Georgi Mihailovic sticks out uh, for Montreal. I think he's had an assist the last two times uh, Montreal played Miami. Also, Miami has not gotten on the score sheet against Montreal in their last two outings in 2021. So that's two things to look for. Their creative playmaker, their number 10, Georgi Mihailovic, uh, you have to be able to contain him. And with this new midfield coming up if it's uh, Victor Uyo and Gregory playing amongst each other 
you have to see if they're able to contain him. And then also now that they're finally on the score sheet inter Miami, I mean, they're finally on the score sheet. They need to get a consistent run of form in the attack and, and try and put a goal past um, th- this. Maybe I, I maybe Diop starts. I'm not totally sure. He hasn't started against Miami this season, but he is their number one goalkeeper uh, for, for Montreal. But it, it would be very important to get a goal against Montreal uh, to kick off this very, you know, tough week of games like i said you have three in the coming week or eight days so you need to start off with a goal and hopefully they can get it done but also my other key to the game is containing georgie mihailovich yeah i agree with you austin i i'm looking at the injury sheet here for montreal right now and it says the will be out sent for you know until late july but uh, he could start but i'm not entirely sure as for what Inter Miami needs to do in order to win, I personally believe that they should revert to a back three, you know, try to match up Montreal because, you know, those last two games that they've played, it's not been the greatest, you know, that wait, back four. Wait, wait, Alex, wait. Are you like trying, like, I mean, how much are you like trying to tell me about my dreams? Like, wasn't the back three the first time Neville explored the back three against Montreal and that's how we went down 2 0 and then Phil Neville had to change out. it within 25 minutes? Uh, you I have, have a logical isn't, isn't explanation. That what happened, though? Alex, you just I opened have, up the biggest can of worms ever. I have a logical <laughs> explanation for this, though. I, I did the math, I did my research. I personally think that he should start the same starting 11 but have LGP, Shawcross, Figal as the back three, Lewis Morgan as more of a hybrid wing back. No. Reading to dream. I can't. I can't. I can't. Whenever Inter Miami play Montreal with that back four, they always get exposed tactically. They, but they conceded, they conceded twice to Montreal in 25 minutes when Phil Neville explored the back three with Lewis Morgan as a wing back. Austin, yeah, but that's when Matuidi was playing was as a central yeah. midfielder. <laughs> okay, but do you think that in the last... Since that game in May, that they have practiced a back three since then. If we're going to say that they went back and only practiced for a week and they weren't prepared, I'm sure that they're only going to have a week's worth of doing that if they were to do it this week, right? I'm sure they practiced they a back three. Since day one. I don't think. I don't. I don't think that Neville go. There's no way that that's going to happen. I don't think he will, but I personally think that just matching Montreal number per number, just trying to stymie out whatever they do offensively, and then maybe trying to hit them on the counter will be best because whenever Inter Miami plays Montreal, they never get on the ball. They never create chances. They're always pinned back. So in order, in order to nullify that, they've got to just numerically match them up instead of trying to play a 4-2-3-1 where they're going to leave gaps in the middle where they know numerically with Mihailovic as that free-floating 10, they're going to be outmatched You know, if they line up in that 4-2-3-1. So I'm saying with a back three, not, not like... Lewis Morgan is not going to be completely defensive. He'll have Robbie up top with Iguain and Federico as the whole player. And that double pivot of Gregory and Ujoa and Gibbs on that left-hand side. Inter Miami will be able to match them up numerically, hit them on the counter because Robbie will be up top. They'll provide some pace and space. Lewis Morgan and Gibbs on the flanks will provide some pace and space. And that back three will be able to stretch without leaving themselves open. I know you guys are, you know, flaming me for saying, oh, well, they conceded. But that's when Matuidi was in the lineup and he didn't know, you know, his left foot from his right. So I, I genuinely... Oh, awesome. so, wait, so, so why you change... You just described my favorite thing ever, Alex. Like, <laughs> I've been wanting this team to play that way since day one this year. Question, question. Why would you change... 
like I said in the beginning of this show, I said that you control that Inter Miami controlled the game against Philadelphia, and they did exactly that. They controlled possession definitely in the first half. They lost a little bit of it in the second, uh, and I think they ended the game with fifty four percent. Why change that? Why why change if you're not going to change the lineup? Why change the formation you played? It, coming off a game where you actually controlled possession if that's what we're because going possession for possession doesn't matter with this team but if yeah, yeah <laughs> because the union i think inter miami lineup well against matchup well against the union the union play a 4-3 you know this diamond midfield and numerically with the 4-2-3-1 that inter miami has they match up well with that against montreal with that midfield four with jordy playing that 10 role and the two uh center forwards up top numerically if inter miami play that 4-2-3-1 i should break out my tactical board I, I promise you it makes sense in my head with that back three that inter miami would hypothetically play against montreal they would be able to match up numerically with with uh i was going to call them the impact again Breach. they will be able to <laughs> line up numerically with the impact with montreal um, Federico, if he starts, like I suggested, he would be able to be that whole player with Robbie up top with Gonzalo. Gonzalo would be able to drop deep. Robbie would be able to break the lines between that back three. Intermami's back three would be um, online because, you know, like I said, numerically, it would just match up tactically. I should write a piece on my, this. My counter, my, wait, 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 wait. My counter to this, my counter to this is if you limit I, I don't think that limiting Lewis Morgan as an attacker is a good thing. And if you just tell you uh, Ujoa or Gregory to drop between defenders while Montreal are possessing the ball and use it as a back three in that way, not going forward, because I think going forward, playing three center backs just is a little too conservative and it doesn't do anything good for the attack. And yes, I guess you want to go off on the counter, but it, I think having one of the central defensive midfielders drop between defenders as opposed to Lewis Morgan playing as a wingback is, is much better uh, for the entire game. Not just when Montreal has the ball. Okay. Okay. I have to jump in on this because I am like, I am literally like chomping at the bit to get in on this. Okay. First off, this team has never needed possession. They are 0-2-1, or zero wins, two losses, and one tie when they have more than 50% possession. They always never need the ball in order to score. That's never been the problem. The problem well, they, is well, they always, haven't scored. They haven't scored. Right. That's always the problem. And so the idea of this has always been: when has this team been successful, Austin? And I'll tell you exactly is when it is when they take the field and they invert it turning it sideways to to diagonal it from the left to the right whenever the left back has gotten forward and lewis morgan has been the guy on the right wing that's able to control it that's when they score that's why you do three at the back because if Vigal is your right back you move him inside you let gibbs go forward and now all of a sudden robbie comes more inside as a natural more of a forward as he is and lewis morgan is able to not just have what do we always complain about there's only one person in the box now lewis morgan has double the amount of people in the box you have turned and diagonaled the field and that's where this team always scores so yes alex preach to the gospel of three <laughs> at the back with the gall there yeah i i just because like like you mentioned numerically they never matched up 
well against Montreal. So in order to fix this, just match up that four, uh, that, excuse me, oh. three, four, one, two. <laughs> two like, oh, so, so can I ask you what happened other than, other, can I, the, other than, the, other than the, the Matuidi situation in the midfield? Can I ask you what yeah. happened in that first 25 minutes against Montreal when they went down two goals? Because the defense a, looked in shambles. They, they looked they absolutely terrible. break. They had a yeah. three-hour break because no, of the break. No, 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 no. The first 25 minutes against Montreal, that was a game that started on time, but halftime took two and a half hours. Phil Neville had to switch the three at the back after 25 minutes because they conceded a second goal. Uh, I don't remember who the, the goal scorer was both times, but the defense looked in absolute shambles. And I can look at who the lineup was right now. It, I think it consisted of, of Shawcross um, as well as Figal and LGP all playing together. But that defense, it, uh, so it looked like it was, how did this line up? Anyway, I, I just I, I I can't see I don't I don't know I I don't think that we'll ever come to an agreement on this. We can agree to disagree, uh, which is fine, and I'm having a lot of fun. I just don't know. I, I I don't trust that conservative play, and I think that if Miami wants to try and get wins and and get results, their best effort in doing that is to to keep the formation that they've they've done well with in the last week. I guess they haven't done well with it all year. But in that game against Philadelphia, none of us can say that they looked like a bad team, right? And I know that in terms of matchups, Alex, you agree that Montreal has our number in terms of playing this 4-2-3-1. And if you switch, it could be better. But I I just can't get around to the fact of, do you change your tactics game by game in MLS? I mean, I obviously every single team plays totally, totally different. I wish Phil did. I, I do too. But does he have the, does he have the players to, to, to do that with? Because I would, I would say no, and he's tried it, he did it, but I, I would say no. Yeah, I, I'm looking at the last lineup Inter Miami put out um, against the once again not the impact, not the impact Montreal, and it had your favorite Austin Christian McCoon as left back. So obviously, with that four two three one, you do you, you, you really think that they like? Like they were going to get something out of this game starting Breck Shea but Gibbs is there. Yeah, but look at the upgrade yeah, on the no, left side between Gibbs and Robbie Robinson. Like he, I, I said that Shea and McCoon are the, is the worst left sided pairing you could possibly have with all the players on this roster. And now I'm you've saying, upgraded it to the best you could possibly have. Right, but, but I'm also, saying like you don't yeah. need to change the lineup. It could be the exact off, same thing. Off, you know, because the natural it, Also, we're saying just do it and diagonal the field just like yes. just rotate it you could uh, i gotta explain this like visually uh, through audio it's it, i don't think it's coming across but it it, it it makes sense because you know figal you know and even if it doesn't work you just revac re, revert back to that flat back four you know figal can drop back into right back lewis can be a natural winger etc and federico can be a, a number proper number 10 in that four two three one. But at the end of the day, we'll, we'll see what Neville lines up with. I don't think it'll be the back three, but I, I think if they go with the four two three one, uh, four two three one, I think it's it's just going to be a long night because you know they're going to be chasing shadows in midfield because that that overload is going to be absolutely killer. I, that was one of the most fun conversations I think we've had here on the Heron Outlet. I agree. I agree. And I'm glad that you do. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll have more of them in the per- in the future. Montreal sitting at seventh in the final current uh, spot in the Eastern Conference in MLS. 
Uh, currently sitting 15 games played, 22 points, a plus two goal differential, six wins, four draws, five losses. The other opponent, as Inter Miami will actually literally and figuratively go into the Lions Den, Orlando City, the in state rivals uh, midweek. We will have another podcast before then, so let's talk about that game as well. They currently sit third in the East, having a much better year, and of course, Nani uh, putting the dagger in the heart in the last game uh, against Inter-Miami. They're sitting on 25 points, eight out of New England in first, but just a point behind Nashville for second, uh, and have had a, a really wonderful season, by all things considered. How much, guys, as we preview not only Montreal, but also midweek against Orlando away, how much does what happens in Montreal impact, pun intended, what they're going to do on Wednesday? And how much is it, this is how things are just going to go? Because like Austin just alluded to, they run a 4-2, like, they run a 4-2-3-1 every single time Inter Miami does. And how often do you switch formations? How often do you switch tactics? How much does it matter to pay in the, depending on opponent? Well, I'll say this. For, for your first question was how much does the Montreal game, depending the result, impact the Orlando game? I don't think it does. I think this is one of those one of those rivalries in sports that it could be the best team in the league versus the worst team in the league. And as long as it's Orlando playing Miami, anything could happen. It's just like if Miami's playing FSU or any other of those crazy college football rivalries, you know, it's one of those where anything could happen because it's rivalry and it doesn't matter where, where the team stand. We saw that two, one performance um, that Miami had, they actually had the lead in that game. So that's something to go off of. So, as far as that goes, I don't think the Montreal game really affects how much the Orlando game or do, doesn't affect Orlando's outcome because it just is a rivalry game. Now, if Phil Neville does switch the formation, which I know you guys want him to, and I, but I think we're all in agreement that he's not going to do it. I know you guys want it to happen, but we all know at the end of the day, Phil Neville's not going to do it. So I don't think that that's um, a factor either. Uh, so. I, I don't know if you guys are going to the Orlando game. I think I'm going to try and try and be there. I, I would love to be there. Um, and yeah, I think I'm going to, I think, yeah, I think the, the tickets are cheap. So I think Lama, La Familia is definitely going to show up, but that's another. I'd rather not get beat up by Orlando City <laughs> fans. So I'm going to stay at home. <laughs> well, fair enough. Fair enough. With, but... You know, with the restrictions, they, they do, they, they do a very good job. Like, you know, I was at the game last year when it was in Orlando as well. And, uh, you know, th- this is before, like once everything was coming out after the, the whole um, Disney wide world of sports thing in the bubble. And they, they, they do a very good job of separating different parts of the stadium for different fans, especially in games like this. You know, I mean, you can even look to to drive pink stadium where La Familia is on. One side of the stadium, the opposing crowd is on the other side of the stadium. So it's it's not as aggressive as people try to make it out to be. With that said, I think that everybody, if you can go, should be there to show support. Because every time Miami goes to Orlando, Miami tries to make that Exploria Stadium like Drive Pink Stadium. And I think that that's fantastic and the team is going to need it. That is a very repetitive theme as well in press conferences. I'm sure everybody has found out by now they are always alluding to the fans, asking questions about the fans, and it's 
maybe because that's all the team really has going for them right now. And I hope that they don't lose them, but the fans are so, so behind this team. Unlike a lot of other MLS teams, despite these recent performances. And I don't think that they will disappoint uh, going out to Orlando. So if you want to come by, see us there. Ian said he's going. I'm going. Alex, I'm going to try and convince you to go. We can do our, our the Heron Outlet on the road <laughs> as in Orlando as well as Portland. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to go. My sister lives up in Orlando. My parents are actually uh, heading up to Orlando this weekend, leaving me home alone. But that's besides the point. Uh, yeah, it'll be a fantastic game. You know, the fans don't like each other. It's evident. I don't want to, you know, say this is, you know, there are some MLS rivalries that are manufactured, but Orlando Miami is definitely there. The the players, you know, last year's meetings were heated. Um, you know, the fans don't like each other. You know, all you know, just everything. It's 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 intense. It's intense. So uh, yeah, it'll be a heated battle. I think if there's any game that Inter Miami should aim to win, it's definitely that one that could help kickstart their season uh so yeah it'll be a a difficult match but uh as we saw against the previous orlando game inter miami definitely has a chance to maybe get a win pick up some points against uh as ian likes to call them you know the kittens so yeah it'll be a good nickname it is i I like the disney ones though they make me laugh but (laughs) yeah it'll be a hard game and hopefully inter miami can pick up some points this is the second of three matchups this year. So real fast before, because I want to close with a Gold Cup, uh, and we'll probably have to do it a little quickly as we wrap up here. But this is the the second of three matchups this year. Orlando leads the city three. Uh, Orlando leads the series. Excuse me, three games to two. Uh, all games have been decided by one goal. How and and oftentimes in late in the match, how much. With how this season has gone, with Inter-Miami having fewer points than any team in MLS so far this season, how much is the last two games against Orlando, this game and and the one that will uh, happen later on in, in, I think it's in late August, early September, how much of that will dictate success for this season? Is it if you win those two, it doesn't matter how much the rest of the season is, or is it playoffs matter? So if you lose those two, it doesn't matter. Where's the balance on that? Oh, they are 100 uh, percent momentum shifters. Uh, and, and I'm looking at the schedule now. Obviously, you have the the Montreal game coming up, but then you have to go. You come back home after going to Exploria Stadium to play against Nashville, another team that they have struggled, struggled against, but got a draw against uh, earlier on in the season. So if you can come home from Orlando specifically in this match, getting a win and then Playing against Nashville, I mean, you have all the momentum in the world going into this tough run of games going forward. So I think that especially this one, uh, which I believe the date is August 4th, is going to be huge. Um, And I think the next one, you follow up the Orlando game also away from home uh, against FC Cincinnati. So you've already been to FC Cincinnati, I believe, uh, and and won that game. So it's just momentum and it's rivalry games that can really lift the spirits in the team. As Alex mentioned, you, you don't have, you know, 
very fond memories with each other uh, in the past and the fans don't like each other. The The matches get chippy, so they're absolutely momentum builders in, in a season where you need to turn things around uh, as soon as possible. Having this game could be a luxury. All right, guys, before we close out, let's talk Gold Cup. The USA, uh, as we're recording this, preparing to uh, play Qatar in the – or Qatar uh, in the – Gold Cup semifinals, Mexico versus Canada later this evening in the other semifinal, with the final being on Sunday as well. With those four teams remaining, I I know, Austin, you and I are in agreement that I think that both teams on the other side of the bracket are better than the United States or have played better than the United States so far this tournament and have more talent on those rosters. But could the United States sort of sneak their way into to winning this thing uh, they should on paper be very competitive they haven't played i think in my opinion up to the caliber of what they have on their roster but it sort of opened up very nicely for them to at least make a final and like you said with miami and orlando if this winds up being usa versus mexico or usa versus canada then a rivalry matchup anything could happen in a final like that. So have they sort of snuck their way into possibly winning this whole thing? I think I think so. I mean, if you get to a final, like you said, anything could happen. And getting past Jamaica in the quarterfinals was was definitely key. Um, looking at the semifinal matchup itself, uh, Qatar is not one to be taken lightly. They have a lot of good players who play in the, their domestic league. Um, and they've obviously gotten to the semifinals of the Gold Cup. And that's also not something to take lightly. So with the USA, only I think only against Martinique, they scored more than one goal. They scored six. But against Haiti, against Canada, and against Jamaica, the US has only scored once. And in those three games as well, they that where they won 1-0, they didn't concede any goals. Qatar are a goal-scoring team. So that's something that is definitely to be monitored. Berhalter, I believe, went with the same starting 11 against Jamaica as he did in this now Qatar game coming up. So I didn't like what I saw from the U.S. uh, in the quarterfinal matchup in the first half. I know Hoppy ended up getting that late goal uh, later on in the second. But for me, it was not a compelling performance, and it definitely wasn't convincing. So this lineup hopefully has some comfortability to them now. Uh, DK and Ariola, I'd like to see the link up be a little bit better. Hoppy, for me, has been the standout of this tournament so, so far. Um, and that midfield of, of Leggett, Acosta, and Busio needs to be a little bit more creative if they want to score more than one goal, because I think they'll need more than one goal against Qatar to end up winning the game. I definitely agree. Um, the games of, uh, during this Gold Cup that I have watched, Qatar, 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 they've been one of the better sides, which is, you know, they're not a, they're not a, you know, a CONCACAF team. So seeing them do well in a tournament like this, it, it I should really stop underestimating some of these teams. But yeah, they, they've done super well. They beat El Salvador 3-2, and I know the U.S. did struggle against Jamaica uh, the other day, uh, you know, barely scraping by. I think it, w- it was like a last-minute goal by by Hoppy to to get them past uh, the reggae boys. So, yeah, tonight's game is going to be super great. I think it, it kicks off in about 30 minutes. So uh, hopefully the U.S. can get it done. Like Austin said, this lineup that the U.S. put out, uh, DK, Ariola, Busio, James Sands, Legit, you know, Hoppy, um, I'm excited to see Hoppy again. I, I really rate him. Um, I don't know if he's still with Schalke. Maybe he should move to a a, a 
you know, I don't a better team. Excuse me, Schalke fans, don't come after me. But uh, yeah, I definitely want to see him <laughs> flourish a bit. I'm I'm excited for this for this game. Um, I think it'll be a good one. It'll be a difficult one for the U.S. But it, it wouldn't shock me if they do end up losing tonight. But yeah, it's going to be a difficult one, but definitely something that you know will be entertaining uh, for the neutral viewers, not so much for U.S. men's national team fans like we are. <laughs> I wonder what this is an indictment on Greg, like one way or the other. If this, if he is able to pull it out and win this gold cup, is he enthralled by the American fan base or does it not really matter? Or if it doesn't wind up happening, does he feel the wrath of the you know the american outlaws sam's army whatever it may be does he feel that wrath from from the fans i'll go i'll, I'll speak really quickly on this i know we're running long but burhalter does not have the american fan base at the moment and i think that it's largely due to his selection of players not only um in terms of the bringing in an entire roster to a tournament but also what he puts on the field in his starting 11s i think he's definitely shown that he picks his favorites he has his go-to guys and with all the talent that the u.s men's national team has now i think he needs to explore a little bit and i think he has done a little bit of that it's a little bit too late now to explore too much with world cup qualifiers coming up this fall uh, but between what he's done in the Nations League and if he does end up winning the Gold Cup, obviously that's really, really good for his resume. But it just it's always down to Burhalter's selection, whether it's a starting 11 or whether it's the players he brings into a tournament or into a camp. Everyone always has these these opinions that he's just making the wrong decisions sometimes. But at the end of the day, if he's winning, that's a good thing. And if he does win both tournaments this summer, Right, and he does qualify the U.S. men's national team for the World Cup. You can't really argue with him, despite your thoughts on him. Yes, I can, and I will. Go ahead, because I think that a lot of the decisions have been have been poor. But that's I, I, I agree. That I agree, one hundred percent. I'm not a Berhalter fan by any means, but if he does, you know, bring this resume into World Cup qualifying, two tournament trophies. In the but summer, he, but isn't he expected to do that? I guess, like, wh- I, mean, I don't know why I'm like congratulating you for something that I have hired you to do. I mean, beating if if they beat Mexico in a final again, that's not something that the U.S. has done normally, right? I think. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't agree a lot of the time with Burhalter selections. I never do, and I think that there's much talent to be explored in the u.s men's national team pool and he has not he has not done that so i i am going to toss this over to alex but it's hard to fully argue with him if he is winning and if he does qualify us for the world cup you can't say that there is a better option at this moment for 2022 my question is when can we get jesse marsh into the U.S. men's national team job as quickly as possible. That would be nice. So. Yes, <laughs> I, that's my preferred choice. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That'll be my preferred my preferred choice uh, personally. But yeah, I agree with your points about Greg. He could do a bit better, but um, like I said before, the Gold Cup is definitely a tournament where he's seeing what players he can take into World Cup qualifying. I know the Nations League was a, a huge thing, and you know the U.S. won that against Mexico. So, um, yeah, obviously, uh, Burr Burhalter wouldn't be my first choice, but 
it is what it is. And, you know, uh, we, we as fans just have to wait it out until, you know, maybe he doesn't qualify. I hope he qualifies, but he, he definitely wouldn't have been my first choice, but you know, he just needs to get the job done at this point. Okay, so yes, we went long, and no, we won't go any further. Thank you for sticking with us for this entire time. A spirited conversation, I think a wonderful one, and really insightful, guys, into Inter-Miami, into Fort Lauderdale, and now into uh, uh, the U.S. men's national team. So a wonderful time here on the Heron Outlet. Make sure you follow us at the Heron Outlet on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, We'll be giving you coverage from both Montreal uh, this coming weekend at Orlando uh, midweek and coming up uh, with another episode next week. He is Austin Robillard. Uh, She is Alex Winley. I am Ian Hest. And have a great day.